I want to welcome you. The Pacific Hope Church family welcomes you. Uh, we are in the middle of a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. We study the Bible here verse-by-verse. We want to teach the whole counsel of God. Leave nothing out, water nothing down. Just bring it as it is for the glory of God. He's given us His Word so that we might know Him. And that's what we're here for this morning, to rejoice in the glorious truth of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. But before we continue this morning, I want us to think about compassion. If somebody closes the doors so that we don't hear the traffic. I want us to think about compassion. And how it's often, you know, get this, how it is often misconstrued. Compassion. And how it is often misconstrued. Now, we all certainly understand it to be of a sympathetic nature. After all, Psalm 145 verse 8 states that the Lord is gracious and full of compassion. Slow to anger. Great in mercy. Certainly, if you're in Christ here this morning, you are forever thankful for the mercy and the compassion of our Lord. The Lord instructs His people in Zechariah 7 verse 9 that we are to show mercy and compassion everyone to His brother. Matthew 9.36, when Jesus saw the multitudes, He was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. In Mark chapter 8, verse 2, the Lord said Himself, I have compassion on the multitudes because they have now continued with Me three days and have nothing to eat. And we know that He went on to multiply bread and fish, miraculously feeding upward of 15, 20 to 25,000 people. Story of the prodigal son. Luke chapter 15. When He came to His senses... He journeyed home. And in Luke 15, verse 20, it tells us that when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck neck and kissed him. Certainly these examples are easy for us to recognize and embrace when we think of compassion in that manner. The Oxford English Dictionary defines compassion as sympathetic pity and concern for the sufferings or misfortunes of others. Now certainly there was no one who was more sympathetic for the sufferings or misfortunes of others than Jesus Christ Himself. Nevertheless, the altogether lovely and compassionate Lord and Savior said to those who rejected Him that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. It's important to note that Jesus spoke more about the sorrows of hell than He ever did the joys of heaven. He taught that the unrepentant, in other words, unbelievers, the unsaved, would end up in Gehenna, where He said was a place of eternal punishment teaching his disciples not to fear man who can only kill the body. In Luke 12, 5, he says, I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him, referring to his father. For after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Reverential awe for the one who spoke creation into existence. The compassionate Lord candidly described hell as a place of darkness. In Matthew 8, 12, it says, But the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The context there, the the, uh, sons of the kingdom, were the Jews. The physical heirs of Abraham. The ones who were granted the covenant. But by the words of Jesus, no one gets in by proxy. They were the most responsible because they knew the more. They were they they knew more. They were given the very oracles of God, the words of God. They were that therefore that much more accountable for what they knew to be true. Jesus also affirmed that hell is a place of conscious torment, a fiery furnace, a place where the worm never dies. 
In Mark chapter 9, verse 48, John, the author of the gospel we're looking at this morning, explained it as the lake of fire and as the second death. Now, if we were to consider the scriptural depiction of the future condition of the lost, the future condition of those who are not born again of the Spirit of God, as Jesus said, you must be born again, we must understand that it clearly consists of eternal suffering, conscious torment, ultimate spiritual ruin, the loss of everything good, and finally perdition in hell. True compassion, true loving compassion will herald a clear warning against such suffering and calamity. One who has the truth, one who's been saved by the truth, one who's compassionately involved with the lost will declare this truth. Just as the most compassionate one himself did, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Nowadays, if a preacher or any believer for that matter stands and speaks about hell, eternal torment and suffering... For all who are not truly born, again, followers of Jesus Christ, they will be regarded as anything but compassionate and loving. They'll be marked as a fire and brimstone preacher. (laughs) Unloving, unkind, brash, cruel. I mean, our evangelists in this church experience this regularly. We have, if you don't know this, we have passionate evangelists in this church. Very gifted evangelists. This church has an evangelistic heart. You go out with the good news. They share it publicly. They proclaim it on college campuses. They proclaim it at Balboa Park, down at the beach. They herald the truth. They engage in conversations with people. They lovingly proclaim this truth. The ironic thing is, Those who mark us as unloving, unkind, brash, and cruel are not the unbelievers that we're confronting. It's those who happen to be within earshot who come up and say, I'm a Christian, you're cruel, you're unkind. That is not a loving message. In other words, it's coming from professing believers. The problem is that they have a very man-centered theology rather than a biblical theology. It's an indictment against the church today. Such condemnation is the condition, get this, of excruciating separation from the very presence of God for all eternity. That ought to frighten you. Not if you're saved, it ought to frighten you for those that we love. Matthew 22, 13, Jesus speaks, he says, The king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There will be, where, will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Warning the unredeemed of God's looming judgment is deeply compassionate. A deeply compassionate thing to do. Last time we were together, we witnessed the words of Jesus Christ in the temple at the Feast of Tabernacles as he cried out in John 8, verse 12, he spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. I'm going to ask that you turn in your Bibles to John 8 as we look together at verses 13 to 24 for the reaction of the Jews to this great proclamation of Jesus Christ. And it reads, in beginning in verse 13, Then the Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. And yet, if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. And then they said to him, Where is your father? 
Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him for his hour had not yet come. And then Jesus said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come. And he said to them, you're from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Father, I pray that you'll open our hearts now to your authoritative, everlasting, glorious word. I pray that your church would be edified, Lord. I pray that you'd give us a a passionate desire to not only walk in the holiness granted to us by the presence of your spirit in our lives, but also be compassionately involved in the lives of those before us who don't know you. And I pray if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, who is yet condemned in unbelief, that you would radically transform their lives by the power of your word, the presence of your spirit, and bring them today into saving faith through your son, Jesus Christ, where it's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, Jesus came in the world to give deliverance to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. Now, if you're saved here today, you were blind and you were dead in your sins and trespasses, as was I. We're sinners saved by what? Grace. Unmerited favor. Those who are the subjects of this miraculous grace have been delivered from sin and death. Free. Ephesians 5.8 says, For you were, past tense, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Light in the Lord. Why? Because we have the light, as he said in verse 12. We have the light. We have life. That life is everlasting. He's the light. He's the sun. We're the moon, if you will. The reflection of that light. God is light. Therefore, those who are alienated from Him are in complete spiritual darkness. I don't care what they claim to know about God. If they don't have Christ, they don't have God, says Jesus, says the Scripture. They do not see, they cannot see the dreadful, dangerous future that is looming. Just like these Pharisees, they're blind. They're blind to the way and the means of recovery. The way of life. They don't see it. Because they can't. The Pharisees were blind to the ineffective pursuit of their religious performances. They thought they could work their way into heaven. They thought that they could uphold the law of God. They figured that if, many do today figure the same, if they can outdo their bad with their good, that God will erase their past. Nobody gets in that way. You must be perfect to get to heaven. And the only way to get there is by the righteousness of Christ imputed to you. In other words, the words granted to you by grace, placed upon your account. Jesus announces here their only hope. I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have that light. This was a shocking declaration to these Pharisees. Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. They knew all the theology. They had all the PhDs. They were dead in sins. They did not recognize their only hope. Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ. All he was was a common peasant Galilean. The son of a carpenter. And on top of that, he's ugly. Isaiah tells us that there's nothing in him physically that would draw us to him. So in other words, he was not the best looking brother around. He's God incarnate who became a man. He took on real human flesh, perfectly sinless. When he was confronted back in chapter 7... Nicodemus, also a Pharisee, stood up and he said, wait a minute. Ought we not to hear this man's message first before we go accusing him, basically? And in John 7, 52, they said, are you also from Galilee? Search and look. No prophet has arisen out of Galilee. So this great I am statement here in John chapter 8, verse 12. This is a statement that I am the Shekinah glory 
I am Yahweh. I'm Almighty God. And then the Pharisees respond in verse 13 with an allegation. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. So they, they, they say here that his claim had no support. There was no one to, to corroborate, at least in their mind, this ridiculous claim that I am. Your word is supported by no one but yourself. And only a madman would make such claims. Now I believe that they knew within that Jesus was no madman. Why would they give so much time, attention, and effort to always be standing behind the corner to see what Jesus is going to do now? For no one could perform the signs that he performed. Nobody. They never, ever accused Jesus of not performing miracles. They did happen to accuse him of doing those miracles in the power of Satan, though. Now, it was Jewish law that any statement was to be found upon the evidence of two or three witnesses before it could ever be considered being true. Deuteronomy 19 cited this basic law, verse 15, By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. Notice, they don't even bring up his statement about being light in the midst of darkness. They don't even mention that. They resort to some attempt at some legal technicality here. They say his witness is not legitimate because he bears witness of himself, so it has no legal worth. The reaction of these Pharisees at its core is the response of anyone who does not want to be persuaded by the evidence that is before them. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That's a fact. That is an historical fact. Now, if he didn't raise from the dead, we would have no reason to be here today. Amen. Come on, somebody. No reason. He did raise from the dead. He is who he proclaimed to be. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me, he said. Had he not risen from the dead, he wouldn't be the only way. But he did. People simply don't want to be convinced. You know, it's been well said that light always establishes its claim by shining. Not by debate. Not by arguing. You know, your very life as a Christian, let your light so shine. Among who? Unbelievers. So that they may, bring, may glorify your Father who is in heaven. Whose Father? Your Father. Let your light shine. And the unbelieving world will see definitely different. Without a doubt. Mark was working hard getting all this paperwork in order over the months here for this building we're going to move into, of which we all can be in together with our children, with plenty of bathroom stalls for everyone. <coughs> he was at the bank, he was talking with a woman, and she goes, I'll be honest with you, she goes, every time I have to deal with a church, I cringe. She goes, you've given me a new sense of hope. The way that you have dealt through this whole thing, that you've operated through this whole thing, has given me a new sense of hope for the church. Testimony to an unbeliever. Light. May we be light. Now Jesus goes on now and he confirms his mission. Verse 14. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I come, I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from and where I am going. He's saying, look, my witness is true as, as I am standing here. Yet I'm not alone. Now, although His divine glory was veiled in humanity, the glorious Lord and Creator of all earth, of all the universe, stooped to take on the form of a servant. Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to what? Be served, but to serve and to lay down my life as a ransom for many. For many. So Jesus is now separating himself from common man. And his honor comes from the Father. First he says that he's qualified to bear witness of himself, while his enemies accusing him are not, for they are finite and he is infinite. Secondly, regardless of human testimony, he's never without support, for I and my Father are one. 
His origin, it's not of this world. His destination is beyond the world. It's heaven. I know where I am from, why I'm here, where I'm going, but you're too blind to recognize me, is what he's saying. You've missed the very signs that manifest my glory. First miracle Jesus did, John chapter 2. He begins his public ministry. He goes into Cana, the wedding of Cana. His first miracle was turning what? Water to wine. The, the purpose of that miracle was to manifest his glory. It was a sign miracle, to manifest his glory. And what does a sign do? It points forward to something greater than itself. The sign is there for a purpose. It was to point to the manifest glory of the Son of God in human form, God incarnate. And he was doing this on and on and on. He's healing lepers. He's healing the blind and the lame. And they said, look, you've missed the signs that manifest my glory. You're blind. Jesus doesn't need testimony of anyone anyhow. Because one person of the Trinity speaking is enough. Amen? Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. He knows himself. He knows his knowledge. His knowledge is perfect. It's complete. But they, on the other hand, had no such knowledge regarding him. This was made obvious from the occurrence that happened just hours prior to this, back in John chapter 7, verses 25 to 44, after he declared that if anyone thirsts, he said, let him come unto me and drink. And after that bold statement, for he who believes in me, he says, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And it's from there that there was a division among the people. Some believed, some did not. And Jesus goes on now and he points out the Pharisees' faulty, finite criterion for judgment. Verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Now Jesus informs them that their judgment is restricted and it's subject to human faulty wisdom. They don't have the right faculties to judge. Okay, think about it. This is fallen, sinful, corrupted, depraved man attempting to judge God. Who's declared himself over and over, proving who he is by his signs, miracles, and wonders. And they're, they're judging him, attempting to judge him. The very one who came to warn them and compassionately tell them of their doom and their condemnation, he came to save so when he says here that I did not come to judge, look, mankind's already condemned. So Jesus didn't come to condemn. He came to point out their condemnation in order that they might be saved. To lay down his life. All, all unbelievers are condemned already. Turn back to John chapter 3. Look at verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in, okay, not about, believed in, believed into the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than the light because what? Their deeds were evil. So, their mere outward manner of judgment would be their inevitable doom. They're judging him not to be who he claims to be. They don't believe because they're condemned and he's the only hope to bring them out of their condemnation. When you were born and you grew, you were a non-believer, you were condemned because of your unbelief. God radically transformed you and granted you the grace to believe you're no longer condemned. You're saved by grace through faith in the provision Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus is reiterating here the same truth that he's gone over before and he's just using slightly different terms. You can turn to John, uh, also John 5, look at verse 36. He says, but I have a greater witness than John's. Now he's speaking of John the Baptist. John the Baptist came to pave the way for Messiah. John the Baptist came on the scene preaching repentance. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
But I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I do bear witness of me, that the Father has sent me. So he not only did have John the Baptist as a witness, he also had his divine, powerful works, his signs and his miracles. Verse 37, And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding where? In you. To believe that his word must be abiding in you. Abiding, continuing on with, dwelling in. It's a dwelling place. It's home. Because whom he sent, him you do not believe. Look, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. That's the problem. They knew it up here, but it never made it to the heart. They knew their theology somewhat. They missed the fulfillment of it all who was standing before them. You know, I wonder, we see all these Pharisees approaching Jesus time and time again, accusing him over and over. Look, is this the same group of Pharisees? Or is this different groups? I mean, it doesn't say. I mean, if this is the same group, man, the brothers are gluttons for punishment. Because Jesus makes them look like fools time and time again. They keep coming back for more. So perhaps it's just, there's approximately 6,000 Pharisees in Jesus' day throughout the land. But here in Jerusalem, you know, man, is this the same group? I mean, these guys had to be beside themselves. But here's the ungodly attempting to judge God. The judgments of unsaved people regarding God are always based on mere speculation. Unless man receives special revelation from God himself to be able to believe, he will continue on with speculation, finite speculation. They'll judge according to the flesh. This is fallen man in a fallen world attempting to judge or rationalize God basically out of their mind is what they're trying to do. And don't bother me with the facts. We're called, brothers and sisters, we're called to bring His authoritative truth to lost mankind. Not flawed thinking. Not the philosophies of men. The truth of Scripture. That's love. That's compassion. Who brought you the truth? Who was bold enough to bring you the truth in your life? Who didn't swat you on the bottom going, Hey man, I know you believe in Buddha and Confucius and you know what? Jesus is my Lord, but we're in the same club. We're all good. They didn't bring you that, did they? Jesus said, I judge no one. Now this does not mean that Jesus is not judge in any sense whatsoever. His purpose here was not to condemn. His purpose is, is to come to those who are condemned in order to save And we know that the presence and the message of Christ guarantees worldwide division. Okay, the gospel unites. Who does it unite? The true church, true believers. And only true believers are the true church. Those who are born again are truly, according to Jesus, the the only church. Those are the ones that are united. The gospel also divides. Jesus said, I did not come to bring priests to the earth, but a, a sword. To come to divide father against son and mother against daughter and a family of five, you know, three against two. So such division entails judgment, ultimately. So for Jesus, even though judgment is certain because of the hardness of man's heart, and albeit he did come to save, his judgment, nevertheless, it's true, it's indisputable, it's divine, and then he goes on to back it up. He confirms his oneness with the Father. Verse 16. And yet, if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. So Jesus is not speaking here in independent terms, but in perfect conformity, in perfect union with the Father. And if you're in Christ, guess what? You have perfect union with the Father through the Son by the resident power and presence of God the Holy Spirit, you see? 
glory to God. Amen? Rejoice. Again I say, rejoice. Matthew 3. Jesus commences His uh, public ministry. He goes out where John the Baptist is, proclaiming truth, telling Israel to repent because their Messiah is here. I'm here, crying in the wilderness, paving the way. Here He is. Jesus comes down to be baptized by John. John says, far be it for me to baptize you. I'm the one that should be being baptized from you. Jesus said, nevertheless, let it be so that the Scriptures may be fulfilled. Jesus bows down. He is baptized and he comes up from the water the heavens were open to him the spirit of God descending like a dove alighting upon him suddenly a voice from heaven came saying this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased there you have the presence of the Trinity God the Father speaking God the Son being baptized the Holy Spirit descending upon the Son and then he would be driven out led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days and come back full of the Spirit. So Jesus' claim demands a decision. Either we accept this and believe or we reject and disbelieve. There's no middle ground. We must tell people there's no middle ground. Ye are born again of the Spirit or ye are not. No one's kind of in. See, human judgment can never get below the surface. You can't judge my heart. I can't judge yours. I don't know who's saved and who's not. We can certainly see the fruit in someone's life. We can see bad fruit on a tree which represents a bad root. Amen? And if they say that they're a Christian, we can hold them accountable to the rotting fruit. <laughs> Shriveled up and wilting dead branches. Right? And we can say, hey man, check your root. Are you in the faith or not? That we can do, and we're called to do if you profess Christ. But to the unbelieving world, we simply proclaim gospel truth. You're condemned, says the Lord. And I love you enough and compassionately want to share this truth with you. Man does not see beneath the surface, but there is a judgment that is based on full knowledge. Every fact and detail are laid bare. 1 Samuel 16.7 says, For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You know, the Word of God has a great effect, and it reaches beyond the surface, far beyond the surface. Perhaps if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, you're being cut deep. That's the hope. I hope you leave here saved and redeemed by the grace of God. If you're a compromised Christian, I hope you're being cut deep, and that you'll walk out here repentant. I want you to bring glory and honor to the name of Jesus Christ in and through your life. It's the hope. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, a discerner of thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there's no creature hidden from His sight. His who? His the word. Jesus is the word. But all things are naked and open the eyes of Him whom... We must give an account. Everyone will give an account. You're either in Christ or you're not. You either pay for your own sins or you don't. You know what God's Word does? Does it not comfort the afflicted? The Word of God, you ever been afflicted and the Word of God comforts you? Amen? Praise God for that. You know what else the Word of God does? It afflicts the comfortable. Amen? His Word... Cuts open the heart of man. Why waste time attempting to philosophize with the lost? Right? We can have rational discussions, things like that. But don't leave out the gospel. Don't leave out the truth of their condemnation so that you can get to the good news. Clearly declare that bad news so that the good is so good and they want to embrace it, hopefully, by the power and the work of God. So know His word and declare it. Because without Jesus Christ, as Scripture declares Him, regardless of what one claims, they don't know God. They do not know Him. They're on the broad road that leads to destruction. So be compassionate. Be compassionate like Jesus was compassionate. And tell your lost loved ones and friends that they're lost. Pray for the time and the opportunity and then just tell that truth in love. 
That's compassion. Don't slap them on the back again as we're all in the same club. Oh, that's deceiving. So verse 17, the law is clear, he says, two witnesses are required. And I have two respectable witnesses, Jesus says. Two respectable witnesses, I have the Father and me. Do you have a problem with that? Not you, but them. So without divine truth, his word, divine truth, people will remain religiously steeped in ignorance. And that's where they were. These religious leaders who were supposed to know the most about God and be representatives of God were ignorant to the truth of God. We see that ignorance. Verse 19 and 20. And then they said to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. No one laid hands on him for his hour had not come. Now, this they said to Jesus with scorn and sarcasm. Where is he then? Show him to us. That's what they're saying. Jesus is saying, you wouldn't recognize him if he was standing here before you. Why? Because if you don't recognize the Son, you don't recognize the Father. And you can't recognize the Father without recognizing the Son. It's impossible. So Jesus affirms that the knowledge of the Father is dependent upon knowing Him alone. So because they didn't correctly identify Jesus as Messiah, the only way, the only truth, the only life, the only Savior, the only Lord, they, for, they therefore couldn't know the Father. It's impossible. No spiritual discernment. So true knowledge of God his love enables an individual to believe and recognize his son. So these words of Christ here to these religious prudes was the most offensive thing that he could have possibly ever said. You don't know God. The theologians of the day. Remember Nicodemus came to Jesus at night in John chapter 3. Certainly, Master, you must, certainly, Rabbi, you must be from God for no one can do the things that you do lest God were with him. What did Jesus say? He did not respond to, well, let me tell you, certainly I am. No, he cut right to the chase. Nicodemus, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. He cuts to the chase. You must be born again. So the Pharisees were occupied with the most dangerous activity known to man. They were hardening their hearts. They were in the process of being judicially blinded. Resist the truth, resist the truth, resist the truth, resist the gospel, you become callous. The more callous you come, when the gospel comes, you're already hardened to it. You become harder and harder, and then eventually God will turn you over to a debased mind, to where you can't believe. Are you resisting the gospel today? I plead with you, I beg to you to come to Christ. May He break through the shell. We're in the middle of John's gospel right now. From chapter 7 to chapter 12... Is, is the height of Jesus being persecuted and rejected by the Sanhedrin, the Jews, the leaders of the day. It concludes in chapter 12, and I'll tell you how it concludes. In verse 37, it turns out, look at this, chapter 12, verse 37, it says, But although He had done so many signs before them, they did not, notice, they did not believe in Him. In order that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who's believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 39. Therefore they, what is it? Could not believe. They would not, therefore they could not. Because Isaiah said again, He's blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn so that I should what? Heal their wretched soul. That's mercy, that's compassion. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Whose glory? The glory of Jesus Christ. The glory that Isaiah saw back in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 6. The Shekinah, the great I Am. Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ, who is the great I Am. Verse 20, notice... This happened in the temple. This is the court of the women during the Feast of Tabernacles, during the great celebration of the illumination of the temple. The great candelabras, four of them, with four large bowls of oil, burning with these wicks, wicks illuminating the temple. The light 
piercing out throughout all of Jerusalem, bouncing off the, the, the walls of Jerusalem. An amazing spectacle. It's in the midst of that that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. You notice no one, no one laid a hand on him. No one. Jesus lived a perfectly protected life until his work and his mission were complete. And then he was delivered into the hands of man to be beaten, to be mocked, to be ridiculed, to be spit upon, to have a crown of thorns crushed upon his head and to be nailed to the cross for the sins only of those who will believe. That's compassion. That's truth. Next, Jesus confirms his departure and their doom. Verse 21. Then Jesus said to them, them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sins. Where I go, you cannot come. Now, since they don't know God, they cannot go where Jesus will go after death because he's going to ascend back to the Father. The pr place from which Jesus has come, he's going to return. And that place is barred to them because they're condemned. They don't believe. Everyone who dies outside of Jesus Christ is eternally barred from heaven. If you're outside of Christ today, please, you're condemned simply because you don't believe. You are here by divine appointment either to soften you and perhaps God is grabbing your heart to give you life today or perhaps this is a chastening of hardening once you walk out that door and reject. I pray it's not. I love you enough to tell you the truth. So they're barred from heaven. There's no such thing as purgatory. It is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. There's no purgatory. That is not theology. That is ideology. The ideologies of men. It doesn't exist. So, question, is there a second chance after death? To believe and trust in Jesus Christ? Answer, when people ask you, absolutely none whatsoever. There's not. Many people lay upon their deathbed facing the reality of bodily departure at any moment, deceived into thinking that they're going to be given some second chance to believe upon the name, the person, the power, and the work of Jesus Christ. And they never will. I've been at the deathbed of people who've so long resisted the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that you get down on your knees and you plead with them and present this glorious truth. Jesus paid the way. Repent and believe. And they'll say... No! I'm telling you it happens. They're indignant. They're, they have rage. They don't want it. Hardened. So to die outside of Christ and in your sin is to not go where He is. Heaven. The sin of unbelief cannot come. For where I go, you cannot come, He says. Luke 16. Jesus told a wonderful parable. Ryan read from it this morning. Speaks about the rich man and Lazarus. Two men. One happened to be rich, one happened to be poor. It has nothing to do with their eternal destiny because they're rich or poor. Because I'll tell you what, there's just as many covetous, poor, homeless people as there are rich, covetous people. Talk to somebody sometime. It's no sin to be rich. It just happens the guy who went to hell was rich and the guy who went to heaven happened to be poor in this account. So they both die. The rich man goes to hell. There's a chasm between paradise and Hades. He looks upon it. This is a story Jesus tells. It's a parable. It's a story. He looks over and he sees Abraham. Father Abraham. He cries out to Father Abraham, which means he was a Jew. And he asked Father Abraham to send Lazarus, who was his servant here on earth, to just, just to drop a water upon my tongue for in this torment that I am in. He said, look, you had yours, he had his. You're lost, he's saved. You're here for eternity. And then he went on and he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house for I have five brothers that he may testify to them lest they also come to this place of torment. In other words, send him from the dead. Send Lazarus up to warn my brothers that are on their way to hell just like I was. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and they have the prophets. Let them hear them. 
We have the gospel. The world has general revelation through that which was created. We, God's people, have His gospel. We proclaim it. We declare it. That's enough. That's all they're going to get. That's all you were given. That's all I was given. But not even a spectacular sign. Now get this. Like one returning from the dead is going to change the hearts of those who are set against the Word of God. If your aunt or uncle who you know died and came back and they pleaded with you to believe, if you were an unbeliever, that's not going to do it. Maybe it would. But we're going to see in Scripture it didn't happen when Jesus rose from the dead. Only believers believed. Only believers saw the resurrection. They they were the only ones to witness it. Jesus actually raised another man, different Lazarus, from the dead. Remember that? The brother of Mary and Martha? He was already in the, de- in the grave, stinking, rotting, wrapped. Stone rolled in front of the grave. Jesus stood out and He said, Lazarus, come forth. What happened? Lazarus came out wrapped. What did He say to the disciples? Unwrap him, let him loose. Pharisees witnessed that miraculous event, that great resurrection. They didn't believe. In John chapter 12, verse 10, but the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, along with Jesus. Why? Because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. They remained steeped in unbelief. A divine judicial hardening was taking place. Jesus said, where I go, you cannot come. And then they reply with a sneering, prideful, sarcastic question. So the, G- the Jews said, will he kill himself because he says, where I go, you cannot come? Okay, now keep in mind here where they are. They're in the temple, the women of the open court. They're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. So you have a large crowd here. You have those who... who there was a divided crowd. There was those who, nah, he can't be. And there was others like, mm, he could be. Now, to the Jewish mind, suicide was unthinkable. Okay, now get this. This is unthinkable. To commit such an atrocity in their mind was to go to the deepest depths of Hades. The deepest corner of hell was carved out for those who in their mind committed suicide. So, What's he going to do? Kill himself? Which is to say, well, if he's going to place, if he's going to a place that we'll never see, then he's obviously going to kill himself because he's going to the depth of hell and we're not. Therefore, he must going to he must be planning on offing himself. Just like any unbeliever today, they will ask themselves ridiculous questions regarding Jesus Christ in order to appease their accusing conscience. Amen? And an illustration of that is our newest religious leader in the West, Oprah Winfrey. (laughs) Most recently describing what God is and what God is not. Condescendingly asking someone in her audience, how can Jesus possibly be the only way? How? Because some woman had the guts to stand up and say, Jesus is the only way. She wasn't a true Oprahite. She stood for the truth of the gospel. And here's Oprah leading many ignorant women into her little fold of deception. And I've seen this. I, I, I watched a video of a woman standing in her home, somewhere suburb of Chicago probably. Oprah, I want to thank you. I've been reading the Bible my whole life and going to church and I want to thank you for enlightening me. In other words, helping me to broaden my once narrow-mindedness. Thank you, Oprah. That's reminiscent of 2 Timothy chapter 2, or chapter 3. Taking captive gullible women. It says, know this, chapter 3, 2 Timothy, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Although, look at, having a form of godliness. Okay, everyone's spiritual today, amen? Oh, everyone knows the Lord somehow. Oh yeah, I'm spiritual. 
having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. There's just as many gullible men. So don't take offense, dear ladies. It's the scripture. These were widows who were running about seeking knowledge, seeking knowledge, never coming to a true understanding of Christ. Jesus now goes on and he's going to cut a swath through their foolish assumption by declaring that he and they come from two totally opposite realms here. So Jesus is going to contrast his origin and mindset with theirs. Look at verse 23. So he said to them, You're from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Jesus is contrasting many things here. Many. He says, look, I'm eternal, you're temporal. I'm infinite, you're finite. I'm a truth, and you're liars. I'm life. You're dead. I am light, you dwell in the midst of darkness. I'm heavenly, you're worldly. I'm the Son of God, you are sons of hell. The source of their rejection is birthed out of their, here it is, their self-righteousness. Look, what is, the, what is the epitome of self-righteousness? To think that you can do good enough to get to heaven on your own. That's self-righteousness. To think that you're a good person and can stand in the presence of a holy, almighty God and get there on your own, that's pride. Why else did He come to the cross? Because God demands that His just wrath be satisfied. He's a just God as well as a loving God. So that place that they always thought was reserved for those who go by way of suicide, Jesus says, that's your home. That's your dwelling place. You're from beneath. I'm from above. So Jesus moves on now beyond their sinful, hardened belief, unbelief rather, to the source. You're from beneath. It's the pit of hell. You know, we see this often. Jesus gets back to the source. Peter said, Far be it, Lord, for you to be arrested by a man, to be delivered and crucified. Not if I can help it, Lord. What, Jesus did not say, Wow, Peter, I really appreciate you know, your steadfast desire to stand up for me. No, he said, Get behind me what? Get behind me, Satan. You're thinking in a worldly manner. Referring to the beast, the Antichrist, the king of Tyre, John gets back to the real source, which is Satan. So the source of their thinking is from hell itself. In John 8.44, Jesus is going to go on. It's the same setting once we get to 8. You know, John's gospel, the beginning of Jesus' ministry to the end, three and a half years. But John's gospel only covers about three weeks. I mean, John 7, 8, and into 9 is all like a one-week period of time. Passover in the beginning of John's gospel. So you're in the cover in three weeks. But in John 8, he's going to go on to the same to the same group. You're of your father, the devil. So Jesus is saying they do not receive his teaching because the kingdom of God is completely, here it is, repulsive to them. You don't want to serve Christ now? He's not going to force you to spend eternity with him. If you're in Christ, he has granted you the grace by dragging you to saving faith. He pulled you out of the pit. Amen? I was pulled out of the pit. I didn't say, oh Jesus, please, would you throw me a life ring? I was dead in my sins and trespasses. Dead. What can a dead man do? Nothing. He breathed life into me. Sinner saved by grace. Chief of sinners. Amen. So the gospel's heavenly wisdom, but man's mind outside of Christ is earthbound and worldly. So, life that is ingrained here, it's, it's temporal, it's physical, material satisfaction alone. So they're captive to this world system. James 4.4 4 says this, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
You can read 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17 on your own, due to the fact that we don't have time, and you will see what it is to be of the world. It's a system. Being of the world is a system that promotes pride, materialism, humanism, perversion, rebellion, all the while mocking God. And then what does man do? Rather than realizing he's made and created in the image of God to bring glory to God, he wants to twist and make God into his own image. Well, I say God is like, and then whatever Oprah put in the fill in the blank. Amen? It's an attempt to displace and dishonor God and his authority. All of which is doomed for judgment and destruction. That's reality. It's reality. But those who've been freed from and have fled from such a mindset, a lifestyle, reveal. It reveals their response, by their response rather, that they're chosen for salvation. God delivered you. Your life that bears fruit of the root, which is a life in Christ, bears witness that I'm, I'm saved. I'm saved. Fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. People who love the world system demonstrate that they're steeped in unbelief. It's that simple. So Jesus now goes on and he confirms their condition, their looming consequence, with, don't forget this, compassionate hope. Compassionate hope. Verse 24. Therefore, after all this, Jesus said, Therefore, because of all of that, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if, okay, if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. What he's saying here, if you do not believe that I am, I'm Shekinah. Chapter 8, verse 12, you will die in your sin. So here we see this invisible gulf of separation. The great I am and then those who are dead in their sins. Religious leaders. Stay awake, I'm almost done. No, it's hot. See, the attitude of unbelief here, brothers and sisters, is not simply an unwillingness to accept this statement of fact, I am. I am light. But this is resistance to the revelation of God in and through His Son, Jesus Christ. You see the connection? He's it. So not only did they renounce His claims, they completely rejected His person. He was standing there. Show us the Father. Go ahead. You won't even recognize Him. Because you don't see me. For if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, said Jesus. So, for if you do not believe that I am He, you will die. So, this death and sins will be the result of not believing that I am, says Jesus. So here again, Jesus applies Old Testament language for Yahweh Himself. Living a godless life here will be fixed and definite in death forever the word sin you will die in your sin sin is a word that means to miss the mark you want to get to heaven without Christ you need to live a perfectly sinless life in thought, word and deed who gets in? nobody it's the cross it's the loving compassionate cross of Jesus Christ that reveals for us you know what reveals for us that we're condemned? God's law God's law shows you, you are condemned. Because to get to heaven, you must uphold God's perfect moral standards throughout life. It's impossible. The law is like a mirror. All it does is reflect and show you what you aren't and what you cannot do. And what you are is a wretched, rotten sinner. Therefore, God said, so love the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He provided the sacrifice, the one who came to uphold the law. He did it on the behalf of those who will believe. He went to the cross, appeasing the wrath of the Father because God's wrath must be satisfied. Jesus is the propitiation. In other words, He's the satisfaction of the Father's wrath. And then all the righteousness of Christ is placed upon the account of those who will believe. They turn from their sin. They turn to Christ. They embrace Christ. They're washed. They're cleansed. They're purified. They're forgiven. No longer condemned justified that's the gospel that's what you tell people amen that's what that's the message we herald not oh just say this prayer no you're condemned you're dead this is why so if men are condemned the opposite then is also true Jesus said I'm the light of the world what initiated this dialogue I'm the light of the world he who follows me shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life so in other words for if you do believe that I am he you will be cleansed of your sins and you will live forever where I am 
Jesus said to his disciples, For, you know, I must depart from you, and I go to prepare a place, what? For you, so that where I am, there you may be also. That's those who are in Christ. Those who are the Lord's. That's the message today. That was John 14. So to be in Christ is to be in Christ for all eternity. The gift of faith moves the sinner from death to life. He moves from condemnation to salvation. You're justified. You're declared free. You're declared righteous. You're free from blame. You're positionally perfect. Not practically perfect. Positionally perfect. And as we'll see, when we go back to John 3.35, I'll just read this. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. Present tense. Has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see in the Son shall not see life, for the wrath of God abides on him. In verse 30, which we'll see next time, as he spoke, as he spoke these hard words, notice this. Hard words, amen? What happened? Many believed. Many believed. You can get anyone to raise their hand when you say, who doesn't want to go to hell? Well, just say this after me. When you give the real gospel, Jesus said you better count the cost. Count the cost if you're going to follow me. This is a divinely provided syllabus for us in our teaching and in our evangelism. So may we embrace it. May we proclaim it in love. So thanks be to God that we're not called to go share our own finite, disjointed thinking. Amen? We have objective, powerful, everlasting truth right here. So may we know this. Study to show thyself approved, a workman who's not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Amen? Do that. We do that in the power of the Holy Spirit because God is a merciful God. Ezekiel 33.11 says, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? He said this to his covenant people, Israel. John 6.37 All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means what? Cast out. You don't know Christ? Come to Christ today. Between you and Him. May God wake you up out of your dead sleep so that you can proclaim like those in Christ, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for that condemnation has been removed as the wrath of God was poured out upon God the Son, the way, the light. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God if you don't know the Lord today. Humble yourself in your deadness. Cry out to Christ for mercy. And the hope is that He has you in a place to be able to believe. He'll remove the condemnation that we deserve. He bore the pain. He bore the shame of the cross. You love people? You want to be compassionate? That's the gospel we proclaim. That's the gospel we're called to proclaim. So if you're an unbeliever here today, I pray that God will break you to broken repentance that you might be saved. If you're in Christ today, if you call yourself a Christian and you're not walking in the light, repent. If you're walking in the light, praise God for His grace to sustain you this day and into tomorrow. And may we as believers be reminded of this. If you're not a believer, may this be a stark reality to your mind and heart. Because I love you to tell you the truth. Jesus, imagine Him saying these words. You call me Master and obey me not. You call me Light and see me not. You call me the Way and walk me not. You call me Life and live me not. You call me Wise and you follow me not. You call me just and love me not. You call me rich and ask me not. You call me eternal and seek me not. I condemn thee, so blame me not.
Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the hope. The hope of our salvation. Your Son. The provision. Jesus Christ. Who came to bear our sin, to bear our shame, to take the pain of the cross, to allow Himself to be delivered into the hands of man, to be crucified, to be mocked, to be ridiculed, to be spit upon, and to die in a spear jammed into His side, only to be buried and then to raise again. We praise You for the Gospel. We praise You for our salvation. And God, I pray for Your church to be encouraged and blessed to live as the light so that the world would see our good works and not pat us on the back, but glorify You in heaven with the hope that Thou might be drawn to You. And may we boldly proclaim the truth in love, gently but truthfully. And for anyone here who doesn't know You, God, I pray that You'll break them, the hardness of their hearts, open their eyes that they may see and understand, call out for mercy and be saved. pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Together we all say, Amen. Hey, uh, some verses, some texts are more difficult than others. Some of them knock us up alongside the head. Amen? They just do that. Can't skip over that. Right? So, God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord. Proclaim the truth. Live the truth. Praise God for your salvation every day. Amen? God bless you.